Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took, took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout. Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we set our hope in you with our eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus, who we may follow to eternal light. Receive these words as an offering of praise and bless them to our hearing. Amen. I know we are a few weeks away from the first Sunday in Advent, but for my part in the work with the Christian Seasons calendar, I, it seems that I have been anticipating Advent since Epiphany. <laughs> the calendar team works in this kind of cycle that once we have shipped as many calendars as possible for the Christian New Year, we take a brief Christmas holiday and then start creating the calendar for the next year. In this work, I feel like I'm always getting ready for Advent, but right now, when I've still got a few weeks to ship and deliver ahead of time, I'm particularly aware of how congregations and church members are preparing for this upcoming season of waiting. The packages that I trek to the post office are getting larger and heavier. The messages I get in my inbox for local pickup that were gracious a month ago are now urgent and curt. I see in the analytics of our daily reflections email how we get more sign-ups and email opens and link clicks the closer we get to Advent. Collectively, we are readying to wait for the coming of Jesus. I have come to rely on these weeks as being a bit hairier than usual, and so for the last few years, I have adopted what I think of as a spiritual practice of claiming this month as November, 
where I automatically say no whenever I'm asked to do a favor for the entire month. My standing here today ought to tell you how well that's going for me. <laughs> My intention is to say no so that I can respond with an enthusiastic yes to the service of this job, anticipating that something unforeseen will come up, like a postal strike or a global pandemic or a weather event that takes out a highway as I stare down a deadline with our time-sensitive product to distribute. November prepares me to wait out this hectic time. Something happens when we flip to this last page of our calendar in our lectionary reading as we start to consider the end, like the end. As we get ready to wait for the coming of Jesus, our preparation includes these images of eternal judgment. Today, as Jesus asks his disciples to imagine the kingdom of heaven in this parable, we too are being asked to imagine it so. Think of it like there's 10 young people who are not only invited to a wedding banquet, but they have the honor of attending the groom into the party. They do have to wait for him. They can't get in without him. They hope he comes soon. He could show up at any moment. They have to trust that, of course, he's going to come to his own celebration held in his honor. But it's getting late. Waiting is dreadfully boring and difficult. Sleeping is only natural. But then, holy wow, there he is. They all go to light their lamps now that it's midnight, but only five of them brought enough oil to last them in their waiting. Can you spare some oil? No, there won't be enough. You have to go and get your own oil to fuel your lamp. The ones in the dark go, and while they're gone, the groom arrives. The ready ones attend him into the party. When the others eventually return, they're unrecognizable because the time to go in with the groom had passed. These parables of judgment, and we'll get another one next week, just you wait, read to us like a warning and not a promise. We tend to hear something like, well, if you want that backstage all-access pass to heaven, you better make sure that you're smart about it. If you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. A threat like this lights a fire only under only some of us, makes the rest of us wonder if we want to be friends with Jesus anymore. We don't like to be judged, and we don't think it's polite to be judgmental. So it's hard to hear that our relationship with our loving God includes a final forever judgment call with an eternal consequence that the groom won't know the ones who said they'd attend him, but didn't. It's hard because we hope that we can make good on our word, despite it being late in the day while we are waiting and fighting asleep. This parable is about making sure that we've got what we need to fuel that hope, not as an insurance policy against damnation, but as assurance to do what we're intended to do, to be in glorious union with the triune God now and forever. How we prepare to wait matters. 
As a young person, I had training in being wise. I was involved in the Girl Guides organization, as I know that Barbara and Elizabeth have been, and surely others are at least familiar with the cookies. And maybe you know the scout and guide motto too, which is, be prepared. None of us girls had to ever wonder for what we were being prepared. Our entire program centered around developing skills for facing things we would certainly encounter in the world, domestic or civic or wild. From practicing telephone etiquette and learning to pour tea properly, to dehydrating my food and lake-proofing my sleeping bag, I credit guiding with training me to get ready for the kinds of shenanigans we were going to get into in church basements, in the woods, and in the vestibule of the Zellers selling chocolate mint thins. This training was a habit. Our girl guide meetings always began with inspection, conducted by a cheerless woman we called Cardinal, of all the requisites each girl must possess. Paper, pencil, Kleenex, pin, long hair tied back, proper shoes and socks, clean hands and fingernails. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some. These items were worth remembering, not just because they earned our patrols brownie points, but also because they were totally practical, hygienic, and safe. It's a good idea to carry a backup safety pin and something to sneeze into. Being prepared with a serviceable stock of goods didn't mean that we were being formed to be self-sufficient, unwilling to share, and to look out only for ourselves but that it was wise to imagine what might be necessary to have in order to do whatever we were hoping to do. After inspection, we marched around the room into formation, singing the guide law song, of which I will spare you, but it is a list of tenets proclaiming the kinds of girls we were becoming. Trustworthy, friendly, thrifty, helpful, courteous. Our practices weren't making us perfect girls, as though letting our hair down could undermine our character, but they enabled us to do what we were there to do. Our hair could get pulled out in a game of tag or fizzle in the flame of a campfire. Our practices were making us people who practiced the things that we practiced. You could tell it was us by our uniform, by our songs, and by what we did and how we did it. Biblical wisdom is kind of like this, but it's more than this, too. Our parable affirms that, yes, it's smart for the bridesmaids to remember enough oil to last the night, and yes, it's not smart for those who forgot it. But the way Jesus tells it, there's more to it than just knowing better. We know that wisdom and righteousness, folly and wickedness, are intertwined in the Bible. Knowledge and behavior can't be separated separated in a biblical perspective. But it's more than just doing better, too. Biblical wisdom is taking our hard-won, lesson-learned, passed-down know-how about being the people after God's own heart and living it in full for the sake of a close and deep relationship with the God who made us and who calls us. The kingdom of heaven isn't like an inspection where we must check all the boxes as insurance that we're going to get in, the kingdom of heaven is like a celebration of love and union, 
where we must be recognizable attendants as assurance that we are indeed in the company of the one in whose honor we are made to give all glory. How do we ready ourselves to live in that hope? What will feel it? Knowing and doing that is biblical wisdom. Hearing this passage as a promise is difficult as we work to reconcile all the ways that humans use and abuse power and privilege to keep other humans from flourishing, particularly power miswielded in the name of Jesus and for propping up the church. We work to insist that the church is a people and a place for all, that we can come here as we are to receive the amazing grace of Christ. We are careful when we suggest that the Spirit may well move us and break our hearts open to others and change our minds about how to live in the world, as Jesus says, despite that not being how the world does business. We are sensitive and humble to all the ways that we don't know, can't be certain, see through a glass darkly, and stumble and get weary and fall asleep. Even if we can rest in the promise that God is the author and judge of our earthly lives, that the groom's the last word and we are not, it's tough to imagine that it will be like this. I think about the disciples hearing this story, trying to understand and be obedient to their teacher before Christ's persecution, death, resurrection, and ascension. Benefiting from the extravagant love of God, are we changed and charged to receive this gift and return it with our whole lives? Can we, by the mystery of our faith, not just be on the guest list because God calls us, but respond to the caller with what we've been given? I confess that my existential obsession is the question, God, what do you want me to do? Figuring out my vocation, hearing God's call clearly and responding in kind is the stone that I worry in my pocket. Does God care about how we make our living? In the realm of God, what we do on Sunday morning and from Monday to Friday go together. Our work and our worship are one and the same. Our beliefs and our actions in the world, our contributions, our citizenry, our human membership, they must go together. We imagine that we've all been invited to the party how can we, each in our own particular way, RSVP so the groom will recognize us? I'll take my lamp to meet him, but will I be the kind of person who brings enough oil to? We are at a temporal distance to these images of lamps and oil, so we should take a second to pay attention to how precious and how commonplace these items would have been at that time. You absolutely needed a lamp to get by at night. There wasn't light pollution, darkness was really dark. And stoking a fire and tending a hearth was a placemaking activity. You stayed in one spot to do that. If you were to leave your home, you probably took your lamp. Very practical of you. 
And because you took your lamp with you, a lamp is a symbol for traversing and transition, signifying that you're en route. If you've got your lamp, you're going places. I was curious to know how much oil the bridesmaids would have needed for an evening waiting around for the groom to show up. Like maybe it's a logistical thing that the five couldn't carry the oil because it had to be a lot. And what kind of oil was necessary? Some kind of exclusively sourced specialty oil? I went down a fun internet rabbit hole of the design and function of ancient lamps, and I learned that when it comes to burning lamp oil, a little goes a long way, and it most likely would have been the kind used for cooking, like olive oil. It seems that not bringing extra oil has less to do with the bridesmaid's ability to carry it or having the means to acquire it, but that they neglected the importance of having it with them on an occasion as special as this. When I imagine oil in the Bible, I remember that oil is also for anointing, that oil is important for marking those made holy, for the priests who are called to be responsible for the sacrifices to the Lord, and that oil is the symbol for consecrating an earthly body as a spiritual one. We've seen it here at our font in the sacrament of baptism. After Aaron pours the water over someone's head, he anoints them with oil. We reawaken to our reality during Lent when oil is mixed with ashes on Ash Wednesday and thumbed onto our foreheads, remembering both our bodily inevitability and our spiritual hope. I wonder, aloud, because I've only been thinking about this since Thursday, I wonder if it isn't that the foolish bridesmaids forgot the oil, but that they disregarded their holy purpose, their vocation. They forgot themselves and who they are right when it mattered most. I wonder if the foolish are the ones who neglect their responsibility as anointed ones in service to and in adoration of the divine. If we're to take this parable, these parables of eternal judgment, Matthew's gospel intended for our formation, as Aaron has been insisting, if we're to take it as a difficult promise, we can see that what we do matters to God. It's good news that our lives are not inconsequential. What wondrous love is this? The revelation of God's love, our relationship with the divine, requires us to be the ready ones, awakening from our sleep for that union. So as we get ready to wait, as we anticipate a season of anticipating the one who is God with us, what kind of preparations are we making? Do our practices make us the kind of people who practice the things that we are called to practice? As worthy, beloved, cherished image bearers, God means it for us to be at that party, attending the bridegroom, the whole lot of us, lamps ablaze and held high for the occasion. This is how we will be recognized. 
May it be so. Amen.